Tim and I sit down for our third brain dump episode for season three. This time we are focused on the specifics of exercise selection and concepts to maximize adaptive upside. First, we have to determine what the concept of adaptive upside is. Then we dive into our top three exercise concepts to maximize it in the context of persistent pain clients. During this episode, we discuss movement quality as an adaptation, what the upside is to alternating, progressing volume with time sets, why med ball throwing is awesome, why sleds are the most useful thing in the gym, and how walking is not conditioning. I think you're really going to like what we have in store for you. And if you do, it would mean a lot to us if you leave us a five-star review and subscribe to the podcast. And now, on to the show. I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. What I wanted to uh, kind of get into today was a topic that we we had broached the last episode that you and I recorded together, um, but I didn't really feel like we we dove into it sufficiently, and and that's adaptive upside, which um, is a you know a phrase that I first heard discussed by Pat Davidson, potentially friend of the podcast, Pat Davidson, um, and I just think it it really brilliantly describes something that I really hadn't heard. Uh, given a title or in a given a phrase before. Um, so I kind of thought we could chat about that for a little bit and then maybe uh, off of that build some concepts that are really pertinent to this season's theme, which is again, you know, doing a better job of uh, training people that are struggling with chronic and persistent pain. So what does adaptive upside mean to you? Sure. So I'm trying to think, I'm trying to not do this in the cheesy, like Webster's dictionary defines kind of way. Um, (laughs) But as I sat down to kind of think about this, you know, we have two words here, we have adaptive and we have upside and um, adaptive refers to the adaptation that we're actually looking to get from a specific exercise. So uh, let's say we're doing a, you know, like a three sets of 20 bicep curl, moderate load, Uh, you know, commonly that would be a prescription for an adaptation of increased muscle mass or hypertrophy. So we have a lot of these desired physiologic adaptation. I mean, you know, off the top of my head, we'd have cardiac output, hypertrophy, power, max strength, um, kind of a whole host of other things. But in my mind, it refers to the system changing in a positive way as a response to the stimulus. Um, you know, you're you're the one with the uh, with the PhD here. So I, I do kind of defer to you. Like, am I am I thinking about adaptation in the correct way there? Or am I even like listing anywhere close to the correct number or type of uh, things that a human being could potentially adapt to or adapt from. Yes, adaptive is progressive overload, right? And that that could apply to to many contexts. But I love what you said of system changing in a positive way. Um, And what that positive way is, is an intent, however however you want it to change. Yeah, you listed off definitely a few. Um, Max strength, max endurance, power output. I think that's probably for me, it's almost like 
what are people lacking the most and how can we kind of fill those gaps a little bit? And this has to relate to make sure we do like assessment with someone and what, what they want to be good at and finding where maybe they're falling through the cracks a little bit and filling in. Yeah, I, I, I like that. Would you, and this is again, me, me kind of living in physical therapist land, but um, movement quality would be something that, you know, I, I would say that uh, with my clinical practice, I'm designing interventions to positively affect movement quality. Would that fall under this umbrella term of adaptation or how do you think about that? Yeah. Or I always tend to think about things in terms of adaptation, more in like physiology, very specific based. But now that I've learned a lot about table tests and we can really look at how the system's changing in terms of movement options and where there might be space closing off and space opening up, allowing for that movement quality, I think our ability to measure it, um, I feel like can slip that into the adaptive realm. And I, I agree with you in terms, of especially of physical therapy or when we're talking about persistent pain clients, that's that's something that if we improve this, if it changes in a positive way, the outcomes that we're going to get from that are going to be high. And maybe it will change some of their symptomology. Yeah, I think that's well said. And I, I also, again, I go back to this like movement quality, range of motion, mobility, table testing, whatever we want to call this, um, having a little bit more of a robust movement profile or less restricted motion seems to confer the benefit of having a little bit more bandwidth to play with some of these physiologic adaptations that you're talking about. So it's like, you know, if, if, uh, if your hips don't hurt quite so much, maybe you can do a little bit more work on, on the bike or on the treadmill or um, a little bit more volume on your split squats, uh, what have you. So I, I do see some kind of, um, you know, uh, feed forward or, or relationship between these things. Yeah. And at this point, I really don't think it's a secondary or tertiary thing. I think, like you said, if we improve movement quality, we'll increase depth of your squat, which will improve your ability to gain hypertrophy effects. It will um, improve your whole system's ability to adapt and recover, thus allowing you for further adaptations in, in the other realms that we talked about. So yeah, I think we can kind of start to slip that in now because it can be a focus and huge intent of our training, especially working with people who do have a lot of uh, movement restrictions. Yeah, I, I, I like that quite a bit. And I think, again, just to, to underscore the different types of adaptation we're talking here, I think on the on the far physiologic end, um, you know, if we're talking strength hypertrophy, maybe something like three sets of 10 of a leg press that we're progressing over 12 weeks, that's going to be a very physio physiologic stimulus. Uh, versus if we're going after more movement quality, maybe something like a sideline hip shift, where we're just trying to teach your body to acquire, maintain, and control new ranges of motion. And I think both of those are adaptation in the sense that the system is changing in the desired way. Um, but certainly the mechanisms of each of those adaptations are, are, are very different. That, that's very well said, because one, we are measuring something, we're applying an intervention, and we're measuring it afterward and seeing if it made an impact. So again, both of those things, we can do that. 
Yeah. And I mean, not, also not to get too far off the reservation, uh, probably a person's mindset, behavior, beliefs are also a form of adaptation. Uh, we, we probably won't get that that into that today, but I, I do think that's something. Um, and I go back to the episode that I recorded with Sam Leffers, I think episode four of the season, where um, I, I really do think uh, the power of a qualified mental health practitioner is creating some sustained long-term adaptation and how a person approaches, you know, uh, hard things, difficult things. I mean, something that John Pope and I talked about as well. So I, I, I do want to underscore that, but I think today where I'd like to take this discussion is just how do we construct exercise interventions to make good things happen with our people? Yeah, we're definitely sticking with the physical realm, but I will say for the record, I probably listened to Sam's podcast about three times and I'm really trying to develop better skills at language and communication with these um, types of clients. And those two episodes specifically were insanely helpful. I think a lot of the episodes that I've had were recorded so far, very biomechanic based. And and these episodes were just fantastic. So if I highly encourage people to listen to those. I'm getting soft in my old age. I'm having all the, all the, all the, all the, all the fluffy, like behavioral psychological podcast now i think it's an evolution like what we talked about we talked about last season like a pendulum right it's like you you become so heavy on the physical side and that's fine because that's where we can mostly intervene but all of these other things this season of more train less pain is brought to you by my remote fitness programming service We've been talking a lot about navigating the minefield that is attempting to train and improve fitness while dealing with persistent pain. If you feel like this directly applies to you, it can be daunting to attempt to construct your own workouts and long-term programs. Personally, one of the best decisions I ever made was to outsource that process and hire a coach. Someone who's external to the day-to-day reality of being in my body and my brain that can take my preferences feedback, and athletic goals and coalesce them into a stable, doable fitness program that I could execute. It's an honor to serve in that role for my clients and my athletes. Stop banging your head against a proverbial wall and spinning your wheels changing workouts every week. Start investing in a long-term process to discover what your body is capable of and the long-term progress that you can make. Reach out via the contact tab on timrichart.com to learn more. Now, back to the show. make huge impacts as well. And I'll probably talk about things we can do outside of the gym as well. But the way you talk to people has a huge impact um, on all of these changes. For sure. For sure. And and certainly a person's mindset has a lot to do with uh, the legitimate physiologic adaptations that we're trying to get to. You know, if a, if a person at some level believes that three sets of 10 leg press is going to uh, make their knees disintegrate into dust, there's there, like there's a there's a low likelihood of them applying that stimulus for a long enough time to actually get the desired output. So, you know, they, they need to have a good mindset going into into that thing. So, okay, we've defined adaptation. Uh, maybe it took us six or seven minutes to do that. Uh, and then this this term of upside. So, when I think of upside, I almost imagine like a quadrant system where in one corner you have the maximum good stuff that's going to happen with an exercise with the lowest amount of bad stuff. And then in the opposite corner, you would have like the lowest amount of good stuff with the most amount of bad stuff. So it's basically trade-offs. And I think like a lot of things in life can be viewed by that quadrant system. It's like, what is the thing that I can do to realize the most 
the most potential upside for this intervention or kind of for whatever, while minimizing the potential downside. And I think that it's, if we're going to call that like quadrant one of exercise selection, that's sort of where I wanted to take our discussion today. It's like, what, how do we think about what occupies quadrant one for our clients that are in chronic and persistent pain? Yeah, exactly. And I think we, or I just wanted to keep this in the context of persistent pain, because I do think it makes a difference. One, it goes with our season theme. And two, sometimes we're, if performance is the goal, where you maybe push that trade-off thing a little bit further, whereas persistent pain clients, um, we really want to limit that trade-off because um, not pushing negative consequences to what we're doing in the gym, hopefully will help them improve. That's not the goal, but hopefully help them improve some symptomology moving forward and not make them hate coming into the gym. Yeah, I, I, I definitely am with you there. And I think, again, we're, we're probably just going to be focusing on how to construct things that live in that quadrant of maximizing upside while really being conservative with the amount of downside that we're going to tolerate. But it's not to say like there there would be another quadrant where it would be super high upside, but also super high risk. And it's not to say that exercises that occupy that don't have their place. I mean, I, I mean, I, I would put like Olympic weightlifting in here, uh, barbell back squat, like those definitely have space, especially if, you know, your sport is CrossFit or your sport is powerlifting or, um, I think back to like a conversation we had in this podcast with Mike Camperini a couple of years ago, where he said, uh, no, like a barbell back squat for uh, NFL offensive linemen is an excellent choice because it's like, it's really going to impede their ability to turn and you don't want to have a lineman be able to turn. So there are instances where, but you know, this uh, high upside, high downside quadrant can be useful. We just have to be really judicious with those types of things. Yeah, and, and maybe I'm being biased here a little bit in my experiences because if you're working with someone who's having some knee pain, we'll say hypothetically, and they do do CrossFit and their goal coming to see you is to get back to doing those activities, then those activities need to be uh, put in there. So maybe I shouldn't separate the two, but my more so experience dealing with persistent pain clients, 95% of them have basically no training history or no sports history at all. So there's there's nothing that they physically are like, okay, I want to achieve that. Maybe I have um, one who's an avid hiker, so we focus on that. But yeah, in terms of modalities, I don't think there's a right and a wrong. It's like what's gonna what's gonna fill this hole um, and what's worth it. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I I would say, you know, on my roster, I have quite a few former athletes, like former collegiate okay. football players and former collegiate runners that do still have a very high drive to push adaptation, but they hurt mm. constantly. Um, you know, impossible to say whether or not that's a result of them participating at the thing for a high level for a really long period of time. But I do think there are kind of two buckets of people in that chronic and persistent pain camp. There's like the, there's kind of like the people that have struggled with it for their whole lives and maybe never learned a movement language. And then they're coming to see you, you know, in their forties, fifties, and they're just kind of learning everything for the first time. And then there's this totally separate bucket, which this is like what me and John Pope's conversation was really about, like these hard charging tactical athlete types where it's like some stuff is going to hurt constantly. 
<laughs> now what? It's like, how do you manage that? How do you make decisions? And I think that there's actually, uh, it's weird because if, you know, if you think about what you would imagine each of those types of, of people to be, they probably couldn't be more different, but the principles mm -hmm. are sort of the same. It's like, you don't want to make the pain worse. You want to be able to get them to do stuff that feels good uh, during that they can like progress over time. So it's sort of the same, even though one person might be deadlifting a 30 pound kettlebell and one person might be deadlifting 600 pounds. Yes, 100%. I'm going to pull up a quote that I wrote down today. Um, sure. Expectation, expectations shape the experience. So in terms of basically the the wording and the language that you use and or telling something but just expectations up front like maybe you will be sore tomorrow and that's okay that's a normal part of it i think we forget to say those things just because we're gym rats and we're just like oh i want to be sore tomorrow it's not like right. those two types of people like they just expect and want to be sore versus this huge fear factor of being sore the next day and it, it may they may take it as pain yeah, for sure. And that's, again, that goes back to what you were saying before with the the ability to have uh, variety with your communication styles and to make sure that you're not unintentionally noceboing someone. Yeah. So do you want to dive into basically our top three, maybe um, concepts to maximize adaptive upside with persistent pain clients? Yeah. And I think just to flesh that a little bit. So this would be uh, the kind of the three top things that we tend to think about when we're making exercise selection or dosing, kind of like just programming decisions with these clients. So it's like, what are our guiding lights? What are our heuristics to increase the odds that we're going to be successful in choosing an exercise that's going to let a person achieve the most amount of adaptation uh, while incurring uh, the least amount of risk or downside or range of motion loss, like however we want to define that that downside. Love Does that it. sound like a plan? Love it. Do you want to go first? Sure, sure. And I don't have mine in any particular order. Um, I know we're <laughs> on this show, we're really big fans of lists of three that don't have any kind of logical... <laughs> But I, 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 I suppose this would nominally go like uh, maybe least important to most important or something. Yes, sure. Just pick one off your list and say it's number one. For sure. So I'm going to say I'm going to say this is number three. Great. Uh, number three would be uh, time sets. So this this is oh. something I started to get into with myself. Uh, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago, because I figured out that progressing things with load just wasn't the thing that my body was uh, tolerating really anymore. So I'm like, okay, well, we can't do load. Maybe we can do volume. And so for a while, I tried to progress uh, repetitions, but you can kind of only do you know 20 to 30 reps of a thing before you start to get really sick of doing a thing. <laughs> So the next logical experimentation was instead of uh, high repetitions, just doing a set for a period of time. So like by way of example, I did some um, high box lateral step ups in my workout like an hour ago, 24 inch box, uh, bilateral upper extremity support. So very supported. And it was three sets of two minutes per leg. So in terms of like total time under tension, it was like six minutes of stepping up per each leg. So pretty decent amount of volume with pretty light load, but pretty decent range of motion. Um, so that's something that I've been using with a lot of my more fragile clients where I don't want to progress load and I don't want them straining or struggling to try to get like 20 or 25 or 30 reps. 
It's just like, hey, on week one, we're going to do three sets of one minute per side. And we're going to progress that to, you know, where week four, week six, we're doing like four sets of two minutes per side. And so the volume goes way up, but they're never really straining for it. And we're not counting reps. Um, I think this strategy also massively disincentivizes people like rushing through repetitions, which is going to go along with with uh, my number two concept here. But in general, for for, you know, those people that sort of hurt more than they would like to uh, utilization of speed or momentum or, you know, anything like that to grind through repetitions is something I'm trying to get people to stay away from. Tim, I absolutely love that. I pretty did I much did I steal one of yours? No, you you didn't at all. But um, it kind of goes with like one of my two biggest themes when working with people with persistent pain is find something that makes them feel successful, and then to celebrate small achievements. I'm actually even thinking right now and kind of finding something online where I want to create a few things, like buy things to give to people as gifts to celebrate like little achievements until they feel good about like what they did and then coming back in. But basically I do the same thing without time. I just progress volume instead of load just by using the exact same weight and then showing them, hey, week one, you only did four reps with this. We're on X week and you just did 20 reps with the same weight. And I kind of use that as an indicator moving forward and forward. So the load doesn't become, you know, the focus. It's how many times you can do it. So the volume becomes the focus. And I think that's a huge avenue of success with uh, with people. Yeah, I like that. Um, I, I just want you to know that I will volunteer here and now to be the tester for any gifts you want to send my way so that you can oh. make sure that you're you're sending out the highest quality gifts to your clientele. I appreciate that new t-shirts coming soon. <laughs> I do. I do. I, some, I, I've lost my MVT t-shirt. I hope you're not too mad. I would, I would gladly rock a new MVT hoodie or sweatshirt. My goodness. I'm going to send you a box now. Definitely do. <laughs> okay. So my number three is sleds. So I've ooh. heard this one. Ooh. Oh, goodness gracious. I swear 95% of the reason I rent sp the space that I do is because the gym has a sled. If it didn't have a sled, there would be some serious considerations about that. And I've heard this from a few trainers. And I think, again, this is the problem of separating the physical world and reality in the digital world and what people see just on a post. There's like, I remember some person of assumed authority put up, you know, a sled, you can't measure load. It's not very objective and they don't do sleds. And it's like, okay, put it in the context that they're a, a bodybuilder and they track things very specifically. But when you work with people who I have um, one client who had two patella tears and surgery on both knees, yes, He's worked so hard to be able to do what he can do now, but I'm still not going to load him through a squat movement. Um, we do loaded squats, but anyways, he sits to a bench. But anyways, not in terms of a stimulus, but a sled is something that people are going to be safe doing and it's going to provide an intensity. So even though I can't track it exactly, the weather changes, it's friction on the ground and how much weight we use, it still lets him move heavy things effectively and safely. And I think it's just extremely underrated. How do you dose that or progress that? 
Well, it depends what I'm doing. I do all types of stuff on sleds. I pull them backwards, and that's more so like a movement warm-up kind of thing where we kind of alternate arms through it. Um, I have people uh, horizontal press, so like a chest press forward. I have people throw a sled, and that's power development, which I'm going to talk about next. Um, But when we're moving heavy things, and that's the stimulus, um, I do either – Two extremes, I do short duration um, distances, heavy loading, or I do, um, like you said, like volume. So they'll have to go down and back for a given amount of time. Yeah, I I find that I always like personally and when I program for people default to just using sleds for time, like not really building much load, like the backward sled drag, I just think is so money for Mm -hmm. such a wide variety of use cases, sort of like enabling a person to get pronation, but in a way more open, friendly pelvis position. Um, But I always, yeah, it's, it's something I've, I've never really experimented with, like actually trying to get a loaded sled push that we're progressing with load or like with power. I think if I was still more in like the track and field, um, you know, kind of like sprinting acceleration development realm, that's, that's probably something I would be very interested in. Yeah. And I especially use it for even just five minutes instead of sitting on a stationary bike, bike, this is one of the concepts, but I'm not, it's not in my top three, Tim. Instead of sitting on a stationary bike, um, a movement circuit or a five-minute sled drag uh, back and forth, I think, does a lot more effective work than, you know, sitting on a bike. That's a perfect segue to my number two. Oh, my gosh. My number two is sitting on a bike. Well, okay. <laughs> uh, I, my number two is going to be the the obvious one, just because I, I I think this is really low hanging fruit for people that don't exercise or people that only do strength work. Um, it would be zone two cardio. So, oh, yes. yeah, yeah. So, so not necessarily sitting on a bike, but, you know, we're looking at uh, 20 to 40 minute work bouts of, I don't know, a heart rate probably in the low 140s for a person in their 20s or 30s. And then it gets a little bit lower um, as a person gets older. But uh, Peter Atia has spoken a lot about this. Like if if the if, you know, if the listener is hearing about zone two cardio for the first time on this podcast, I, I would I would definitely recommend checking his stuff out. He's talked about it quite a bit. Um but essentially, I you know, zone two conditioning and aerobic training, I think, lets us capture a lot of the true adaptive upside of more intense aerobic training uh, with pretty much no downside. Like, I mean, my my hip hurts all the time. I could sit on a bike at a heart rate of 120 for two hours and I would get off and my hip wouldn't hurt any worse. Um, so the amount of mitochondrial density, eccentric cardiac hypertrophy, like whatever the specific adaptation is, we know that a lot of really good things happen. Uh, And the other thing that Peter Atia talks about quite a bit is just this concept of um, if you push up VO2 max, which zone two training would be an indirect way to do that, you're just much less likely to die. So like people with higher VO2 maxes are harder to kill uh, from kind of an all cause mortality standpoint. So I find a lot of value, like for my, you know, fibromyalgia type people where it's just like they haven't moved in a while. I put them right on a bike because it's not threatening and we dose intensity up until they can be there at like 130 or 135. You, you talk to them, you put on the music that they like and they, and they realize that, oh, this is work that I can do that doesn't seem to make my pain any worse. And I mean, if you really delve into the research, like a lot of the adaptations that aerobic training 
uh, would garner would actually be really helpful from a pain sensitivity standpoint as well. So um, to say nothing about potentially recapturing motion because we're just getting things to move in a very low tension state. So, uh, you know, be it stationary bike, elliptical, inclined treadmill, I think my favorite is probably stationary bike for that. But uh, I think zone two training is a, a real safe haven for people dealing with chronic and persistent pain. I absolutely love that. Uh, there actually is a study. Um, I'm writing an ebook at the moment. I actually finished it last week. But I did throw in there that there's evidence of aerobic exercise um, reducing pain sensitive in individuals with uh, musculoskeletal pain. Um, if anyone needs that resource, let me know. But I two thoughts there. One, the Peter Tia thing. I have so many clients who read his book and have just become absolutely obsessed with like rucking. One client even bought me like a rucksack and I was like, this is so unnecessary. <laughs> I run up mountains. I'm not going to walk slowly with a pack. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then um, two, I think even just I'm doing a lot of reconstructing my business right now and, and a part of that that gift i mentioned is things that will help improve quality of life outside of the gym and i want to do more of that and even getting people a clip on step counter throughout the day to see how many step counts they do and then i think the biggest with that in terms of the zone two training is in the beginning frequency is more important than duration uh, so if i can get people to go for a five ten minute walk every day do that consistently. And then, Hey, can we get up to a 10 to 20 minute walk a day? And then maybe once or twice a week, we go for a longer bout duration. Um, that's where I kind of want to get people into. And I completely agree with, uh, that was a solid number two. I, I would, the only thing that I would not, not to say I'm like pushing against it, but this is, uh, Bill Hartman definitely has me thinking a little bit differently about this. Like, yeah, uh, I'm with you in that we should be pushing step count on people first. Like if they're not getting 8,000, 10,000 steps per day, that's probably more important than any training intervention, unless they're like acutely in pain, in which case they need something to like reorganize the movement system. But you know, even that's, it's, it's not that physiologic in nature. Um, I think in a perfect world, a person is getting their, their appropriate daily amount of movement and also getting the zone two stuff. So that that is like, I've just found myself having a conversation a lot with mm. clients where it's like, oh no, I don't need to do conditioning. I, I, I walk the dog. And it's like, no, I love that you walk the dog, but I don't think that that's a intense enough stimulus to meaningfully push some of these adaptations that we're going for. But um, yes, yeah, for, I, people that, for, for people that are doing nothing, it's like definitely do the walk stuff first. Yeah, walking step count is great, but that's not conditioning. It's they're two separate things. And I think the whole like, yeah, getting the basic level step count and making a more of a lifestyle change, especially majority of people probably aren't getting even three or 4,000 steps a day is different. And you're right than going rucking for an, an hour and, and zone two um, heart rate and all that stuff and adaptations. So it's two different types of things. So yes, good point. Thank you for correcting me. And I thought that was, that was a good separation of the two. Thank you. Thank you. And one last, this is, um, I forgot where I saw this first. I think maybe this is something Connor Harris posted like a year or two ago, but he's talking about like how everybody wants to prescribe like PRI resets for improving range of motion. 
Um, and I think he, he had someone that had like, it was like limited hip rotation in one way or another. And then he gave another video and the person had better hip rotation. And it was like, guess what I did? And everybody was like 90, 90 hip lift, you know, right side lying, left out of your pullback. And he's like, Nope, <laughs> I just had him increase their step count from like 4,000 a day to 10,000 a day. And I just thought that that was like such a beautiful, like, yeah, like if you can get everything to go in a good direction and nudge a person's activity level to like what a normal human being should be doing, that is free money. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I want, I want that to live somewhere. I, that's brilliant. I absolutely love that kind of stuff. Okay. I think I'm at number two. Um, I'm going to say med ball throws. Um, and I think this is in regards to pushing power development, getting people to move fast, put effort behind things, move quickly. Um, that's a lot of things I don't see through people and finding positions on where they can be successful doing this. For example, if I have an older adult or someone with a lower body movement restriction or injury, um, like well, they can still throw med balls from a seated position, maybe not a half kneeling or split stance, but I find a bench, I have them put one leg underneath. And so they mimic a split squat position but they're offloading their weight onto the bench. We can do side tosses from that position. We can do chest passes into the wall, encourage them to throw it as hard as they can, or in terms of like splitting the difference, just a few reps as hard as you can. Or if you're doing a time set, well, you can just, you know, kind of, you can go for a lighter side toss, a lighter effort for a higher amount of reps. I do that a lot as well. Um, so you can get into hip shifts and things like that or bias sides, but you're, they're supported on a bench and they're more likely to succeed through that. I, I love that. And, and I, I love that you said that you kind of think about uh, progressing those in a couple of different ways, because I think for the majority of my career, med ball tossing was always a power development tool. So mm -hmm. it's like, we're going to do two sets of four repetitions and we're aiming to be throwing that ball as hard as we can by the third or fourth, because we're like trying to learn the skill of, of throwing a ball. Um, lately, I've been doing a lot of like diagonal wide stance med ball tossing for myself and for clients where it's that, that, that like slow, almost like it's like uh, jump roping for the upper body where you're just yeah. like, you're shifting weight, right foot to left foot, left foot to right foot, nice, easy toss. It's something that's rhythmic. It's something that's rotational. You know, uh, Pat Davidson talks about like his big patterns, throwing being one of them. So it's like, if a person has a, just has no uh, exposure to a throwing pattern whatsoever. Um, like I'm very, very right-hand dominant. Like you get me throwing with my left hand and things start to feel better. Cause it's like, my trunk is finally rotating to the right to support that. So I, I really, yeah, I really, really like that. I've been uh, programming a lot of that stuff dosed for time in like the dynamic warmup for my people that are a little bit more like pain sensitive or, or, um, you know, persistent pain ridden. Yes, absolutely. I love that. I do a lot of uh, side tosses on the wall too, where it hits the ground first. So someone doesn't have to catch it off the wall, but with some people, I do want to progress to them being able to catch it off the wall because I think that also has a lot of like reactive adaptations as well. So I, I do want people to do both. Yeah, I think about uh, like how, you know, striking athletes and boxers train and it's like they yeah. get so many repetitions of just like across their body, across their body, across their body, 
of just pushing from one foot to the other. And if they train their sport in a holistic way, I, you know, they get a relatively equal amount of rotations going both ways. And I think, you know, we live in a society that's rotation deficient, movement deficient, amplitude mm-hmm. of motion deficient. So anything that can sort of uh, supplement a person's movement diet uh, that isn't going to kick up additional, you know, injury. What I'm just curious, like keeping with the theme of this episode, what would you say is the like, adaptation that that you feel like med balls are like really good at at driving? Well, there's two things. One, it's like if we're going after movement quality, so I do a lot of rotational things. So I'm trying to drive like movement outside of their center of mass. Sometimes I, I tend to avoid uh, slams, so like um, extending back over their head, so pushing them into ranges of motion that they don't really have. Um, but if I keep the reps low and I encourage them to, you know, push, like that's that's max output work right there for them relatively. Um, and then if I do, you know, I say, Hey, just throw the ball at like 50% effort and we'll do like 20 reps that gets their heart rate going pretty quickly. Um, so I think it's those two extremes. Yeah. And it's a super friendly modality. I can't think of anyone that I've ever hurt or flared up using any med ball toss derivative. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've never had a problem with it. It's a very kind of safe activity, um, making sure you make the right decisions. Ready for my number one? Can't wait. <laughs> um, so this would be, uh, maybe I'm cheating, maybe it's the same as time sets, but I'm going to say respiratory sets. And what I mean by that is any exercise done where we're inhaling fully at the start, exhaling into another position inhaling, holding that second position, and then exhaling to the first place. And my rationale here, you know, we've sort of danced around this concept of superficial, uh, superficial compressive strategies. Um, But essentially, Mm -hmm. when the big movers and big muscle groups on the outside of a person are chronically overactive, they're really going to restrict a person's ability to move comfortably. And the easiest way to visualize that is through breathing, because those are muscles that are going to interact with the rib cage, cross over the rib cage. So if we can get a person doing, let's say something like a heels elevated goblet box squat, where they're going from a full inhale at the top, exhaling to sitting on the box, capturing a full inhale on the box, and then exhaling up to the top, What we know is they're at least not relying on a dominant superficial compression strategy to produce that. Um, The caveat here is I think if you push load with anything enough, you sort of have to kick in big muscle groups in order to get the job done. But this is where I like to start. I mean, even my people that aren't in chronic or persistent pain, just my people that have really low training ages, like I'm working with quite a few runners right now in their 30s or 40s that just have never strength trained. So it's like, hey, we're going to be doing respiratory goblet squats, respiratory split squats, respiratory uh, alternating single arm dumbbell floor presses, because you just need to feel what it feels like to grab a full inhale in each of these positions so that you don't just learn like squeeze, 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 
And then three months you hate me because your shoulders and hips don't, you know, move as well. So um, again, kind of cheating because with these respiratory sets, I do dose them by time. So most of my time sets do tend to be respiratory sets, but I think that this is a really important concept. Again, I stole this directly from, um, from Bill, um, where when he was kind of given recommendations for my training, it's like, no, you, you can kind of do anything that you can breathe through, but the second you can't breathe through it, you're going to be calling into action a muscular strategy that's going to directly run counter to what you're trying to do from a health perspective. I, I love that. And that's a huge kind of on the side of uh, favoring the upside of it. Um, you know, how we always get told like the 80-20 rule of pretty much yeah. of anything. I kind of think with these types of clientele, I'm more so looking at like a 90-10 or 95-5% uh, in terms of, okay, you can fill a lot of these activities going after movement quality, rotational abilities, these respiratory sets. I think it's a great idea. Um, and then just provide them a few exercises that give you a stimulus of what you want. Like I kind of said, med ball throws, like a hard med ball throw. And that's enough to make a change in the, in these people or pairing maybe a respiratory set of a, a squat with something like a, a leg press where there's like an output. And I think working these things in with each other, I think is going to give you the best results. Yeah. And it's not to say that everything should be respiratory because it yep. certainly imposes a rate limiting step that is unnecessary for at least some clientele. I have plenty of, I mean, the other, the other type of people, and I, we've spoken about this before, but the other type of people that tend to seek me out are like fellow physical therapists and strength coaches. So they like know too yeah. much already. And they're trying to do like eight different things when they do a trap bar deadlift. And it's all literally right in their program, like no thinking, like set it up, but then no thinking past the first rep, just <laughs> do the thing. Because it's sort of like the adaptation we're trying to get there is, is a mindset one. It's like, can you just you're excessively zoomed in, you're myopic on the details of this exercise. I just need you to put it together. We can worry about the details later. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these people strive control. So um, yeah. if you can add something in, maybe that that pushes them away from it. It's also healthy too. Yeah. I mean, this is uh -huh. Sam and I talked about this a lot with, with our episode. It's, it's this, the desire for uh, infinite control is you're, you're never going to get complete control. So learning to let go of some element of control, um, it, it paradoxically gives you a much, much better outcome because it does let you focus on the one or two important things, but trying to hang on to 10 or 20 different cues that you're not really sure or even doing anything for you is a good recipe for really like damaging your relationship with training or, you know, your client's relationship to exercise. Thought a lot about that podcast in terms of specific clients, in terms of, uh, We will be back after this quick message. The biggest struggles trainers and rehab professionals have with building and scaling their online training programs, attracting remote fitness clients, and maintaining communication is having quality videos that provide exercise technique and coaching instruction. Well, now you can stop searching the internet. You will never find them unless you go to michellebowen-training.com for the best exercise database on the internet. Imagine all of the funny looks your programs get when clients are trying to figure out what an exercise on their training program is instead of having clear instruction. Gain access to over 1,500 exercise videos, coaching tutorials, and hundreds of positional instructional videos 
to send to your remote clients with the new digital format of the MBT exercise database. You will not find a contralateral reach walking lunge, a military crawl designed for posterior expansion, or a frontal plane hip shifting med ball slam on YouTube or anywhere else for that matter. The new database dropped in 2021 and hundreds of fitness and rehab professionals use it to easily build out their online training programs with built-in buttons to insert the videos into personalized training programs or to use videos to send to their rehab patients for at-home homework. The database will transform your training business by drastically improving scalability, improving communication with clients, and teaching them proper technique from afar. If you don't believe me, Dr. Pat Davison said, and I quote, This database is a goldmine for coaches who care about executing movements for athletes that can legitimately impact sports performance and health. So head over to michellebolin-training.com to learn more. And now, back to the show. You talked about predictability and control. And um, I have one client that if I, I'm not even kidding you, there's, there's no room for novelty. It's, he knows exactly what we're doing. We come in and makes him feel like safe and he knows what to expect. If I try to change a few things, he has a like physical reaction to it. And I was like, wow, okay. Like that's, that's what I need to maybe work on with him is just taking that control away a little bit and, and making sure everything around it kind of goes well in like a safety manner. Yeah. And I'm, I, so I, I don't think my dad will ever be on the podcast, nor will he listen to the podcast. So I can probably say this, like my dad is uh, type A to an extreme, like almost like probably borderline obsessive compulsive um, in his need to have like the minutia of, of things pretty tightly controlled. And I think that I inherited a large amount of that. And when I was a runner, that was helpful because it ensured that I was progressing mileage appropriately, paces appropriately. Um, when I transitioned to being more of a competitive CrossFit athlete, it was very problematic because like in the late 2000s, early 2010s, CrossFit was still very, it was like very philosophically CrossFit where I think one of the boxes I trained in, in New Jersey would not tell you the workout until you showed up. So mm -hmm. what I kind of had to learn to do because I was, I was still managing some hip stuff then, like I would get there 30 minutes before and do like 10 minutes of my own like hip prehab stuff. And then I would hit like the one strength thing that I'd be really sad if I didn't hit in the workout. And then I would go do a full CrossFit class. So it's like within that chaos, I learned to impose some structure on either end so that I, I knew I was going to be able to get what I want. But I, it's just, it's so interesting because I'm like, I'm sure you fight this battle too, where like a lot of clients almost want excessive novelty and variability. Yeah. And it's like, well, we're not going to get any, we're not going to get any adaptation if we don't give your body the same stimulus over and over. Uh, yeah, exactly. It is, it is two extremes a little bit. I would probably say fighting the novelty aspect in the world of personal training is probably the hardest. Not doing, not wanting to do the same thing over and over or feeling like you have to do something different. Okay. I'm going to go number one here. Right. I feel like this is the most uh, 
thing, a predictable thing that someone could hear coming out of my mouth, but <laughs> uh, favoring one arm or alternating activity versus bilateral uh, activity. I'm glad one of us said it. <laughs> oh, I know. I almost feel embarrassed by saying it. <laughs> but it's true when we talk about adaptive upside of working with persistent pain clients in terms of getting um, outputs in the gym. Um, I'm also going to say too that I find a lot of four base activity people find success in, um, especially like uh, bench pressing, people who have upper body issues because they feel successful being able to do it. It restricts ranges of motion. It provides constraints of being on the ground. It makes it easier to get into. I have a few people who have a very hard time getting onto a bench um just finding little things like that you're and cheating. then also you're cheating what? you're sneaking you're sneaking in floor based this is <laughs> you're like it's single arm single leg but also on the floor i know i have a i'm not gonna lie to you i'm looking at a list in front of me and i'm like how can i get this in because i didn't say that how can i get this in i have like a whole list yes that's true speaking um, of segues <laughs> um Alternating activity, getting, driving a lot of rotation. We can manipulate it in a way that improves certain movement qualities with individuals. And um, it reduces some of the movement restrictions that we may encounter when doing bilateral activities. I think, uh, don't you finger gun me, Michelle? <laughs> I think when, and this, <laughs> this is something that I very much got from you when you were designing my training, uh, the difference between a barbell bench press and a feet elevated alternating single arm dumbbell bench press in terms of people's ability to execute it and build load with no injuries is staggering. Like I, mm -hmm. if people just swapped uh, a barbell bench press out for the word salad that I just threw out, <laughs> basically like you're, you're laying on a bench, your feet are elevated, you have dumbbells in either hand and you're, you're pressing one arm at a time while the other arm stays in the reach. It, it's, I, I think that might be the perfect upper body strength exercise. Yes. It's little things like that. I can't even, if I had, if I had a nickel Tim for every time I heard someone say like, oh, my shoulders have really hurt when I did things like barbell bench press in the past, then I'd be, I'd be loaded. Or I used to work with a, a client who did barbell, they had a, they did CrossFit stuff like barbell overhead pressing. And they had shoulder pain for months. And then I literally did not do anything to address it. All I did was take away the bilateral nature of the exercise and open up some movement quality in her shoulder. And it's fine. It's just the exercise was the problem, the consequences of that activity. Um, so I think it's it's absolutely invaluable. Um Especially, like you said, a lot of people I work with also work from home. There's not a lot of movement happening throughout the day. So adding things where we can shift side to side, rotate back and forth, I think are the definition of that upside. Yeah, well said. Uh, in your mind, and again, I don't mean to open a can of worms here because I know we're, we're kind of coming mm -hmm. short on time. Like, why, why do you think that is? Like, why, why are single arm or single leg biased things so much better tolerated in the vast majority of people? Uh, because bilateral, I think the focus becomes the load. And when the load is the focus, people overdo it and start using other things to push that load. So for example, a barbell overhead press, they're going to push it way more than they um, can do it without setting, keeping a good position and scapular movement. 
um, and they're going to extend through their back and through their hips. Um, instead of doing something like a single arm landmine press ahead of them where the angle changed a little bit, a lot more scapular movement. Uh, it actually sets the ribs in a better position. Um, and I, I think it's small things like that, that bilateral movements typically put people in those types of positions. Now, don't get me wrong. I think you can coach people through these things like uh, a barbell deadlift, right? There's a terrible way to do it. And there's a way you can learn people to do it, excuse me, teach people to do it and no problems at, at all. I'm going to learn you this barbell deadlift right here. Oh, and now it's, I, it, Tim, it's 6 p.m. Like where are you? Like, it's you're way past right Michelle's now. bedtime. <laughs> I, I know I th I think it might be and this is I, again like I think it might have to do with and I'm really looking forward to spending time with um Bill in early 2024 to kind of learn more about this concept but like he describes movement as occurring in like spirals or in helices mm -hmm. and I, I I do think that the nature of most single arm or single leg or just like asymmetrical positioned exercises allow for motion to occur on mm -hmm. diagonals, on helices, like not not on the straight axis, but more of a rotational axis, and I I I think there's something there. Um, I, again, I look forward to having a better understanding of that. But in my mind, I think that is uh, that is one piece of the puzzle as to why these exercises seem to be effective. Yes, I think that's well said. Can I throw in much a, smarter a, than my world bottom? Yes, please do. <laughs> can I? Well, can I throw in uh, one just a bonus thing that probably doesn't count to this list? Then you can uh, do whatever you want. Getting into exercises that are not gym-based. So I think a lot of these people in chronic or persistent pain, uh, their path, and again, I'm speaking more so for like the kinesophobic type, like the fibromyalgia type. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm going to have the fibromyalgia committee come after me. <laughs> But uh, I think their path to fitness, uh, the ones that get into fitness is something like they go to physical therapy for a while and they have a good experience with physical therapy. And then they find gym stuff as sort of like the logical extension of that physical therapy. And I think that can be very useful. But what I really love for these people is to get into ballroom dancing or yoga or climbing or pickleball, like something that is an actual activity that gets them out of this state of constantly being aware of how their body feels and they become more aware aware of what their body is doing because i think that you just this we talked about this back in episode one this season it's like for people that are living in a state of pain all the time they need to find activities where their body does not feel like a threatening place mm -hmm. and i mean by way of personal example like when i climb my hip hurts but I know that my hip pain will never be a limiting factor in climbing. And I know I'm never going to fall off a hold or not be able to make a move because of my hip. So for me, like climbing is a happy place because yeah, my hip hurts, but I can accept that. And I can just kind of move on and, and do the thing. So I, I really, I encourage people to experiment and find something that feels like it has some staying power and traction within their life that lets them experience their own physical body outside of just gym-based stuff. Perfect. You did cheat a little bit, but I think that was a great way to end to end it. I see. I went with a I went with a number one and a bonus instead of trying to fit two into my number one. <laughs> You're right. We both have different strategies, but you know, Pot, podcasting level pro uh, finding ways <laughs> to fit four items onto a, a a list of three. No one likes being restricted, you know. No, no, no. 
any other closing thoughts? I've, you know, I, I, I was looking forward to having this discussion the last episode that we recorded. And then I think we went off into a couple other like very useful directions, but it just wasn't adaptive upside. So I, I hope for this episode to kind of be like the definitive primer on that and how you and I think about exercise selection, trying to maximize this uh, adaptive upside concept. Yeah, I think this touches on an important point of the the theme of the season because I think again we've talked a lot about. Um, I very much have enjoyed your episodes and the the emotional and mental kind of pain that comes with everything. Um, so I thought this was a good wrap up. We probably should do this again too. This was this was great. And uh, congratulations, Tim. Uh, you definitely did a good job helping and managing nighttime Michelle uh, through this. So congratulations on that. It was touch and go. I thought we were just going to get a like screen going black. You're going to be stomping around. Um, I'm just glad. Look, we got some apple juice and cookies in you, and I think you perked right up. Yeah, that's all I need sometimes. Thank you. All right. Good talking to you, Michelle. All right. Thanks, Tim. If you're enjoying what Michelle and I are putting together here, we'd appreciate it if you could leave a review on your pod player of choice. Reviews help us climb the rankings, which improves our ability to help more coaches and therapists continue to push our industry and knowledge base forward. The intro and outro music for More Train, Less Pain was produced by Jacob Azurdia. You can find out more about his music by visiting his Instagram page, J underscore Z-U-R-D-I-A. Thanks for listening.